Hello and welcome to the Uplander Podcast, a podcast for bird hunting enthusiasts and bird dog lovers. I'm Jerry Tagestead. I like to pull for the underdog, the lowly and underappreciated of the world. I was tempted to do a second episode of the show on pheasants because, well, this is a show on upland game hunting and to lots of folks that means pheasants, but I'm guessing there will be plenty of pheasant talk in the near future. No, as a bit of a contrary, I've decided to do show number two on Hungarian partridge. The American Ornithological Society accepts gray partridge as the official name of the bird that almost everyone calls Hungarian partridge. Strike that, everyone calls them Huns. They hold the distinction of being one of the most widespread game bird species in the world, being found throughout Europe, Asia, British Isles, Scandinavian countries, and North America. Obviously, they exhibit considerable plasticity in habitat selection and success, but I would offer that they wouldn't be so successful in expanding their range if they weren't so darn fun to hunt. According to the reference Feathers from the Prairie, the most successful stocking of huns took place in Alberta in the early 1900s. 180 pairs were released, and within five years, sportsmen were hunting them throughout the province with a bag limit of five a day. By 1940, they had upped the bag limit to 20 a day, and roadside counts done by the game department showed as many as 25 coveys in a two-mile transect. 25 coveys in a two-mile transect. The female partridge nests in early spring, laying up to 20 eggs. Though broods of 15 to 20 chicks are often reported, many partridge nests don't hatch at all. And it's the same old story that between nest destruction and chick mortality, 50% of the year's young may be lost. In addition, huns are shorter lived than pheasants and have a population turnover of 85% each year. Something for the non-hunters to think about. 85% of the birds I'm hunting will die each year, with or without me. With such an ability to rapidly change population, the effects of limiting factors can quickly become critical. And there are the common limiting factors such as predation and spring rainfall. And in certain parts of the world, pesticides have shown a negative effect on huns by reducing the insect population, critical to the development of young birds. One reason I admire huns is that winter weather is not a limiting factor in the hun population. You'll see the plucky little birds perched on snowbanks, most severe winters, where pheasants litter the frozen plains. Plucky. That may be the most accurate term for these little birds. I meant to get a lot of interviews recorded, but putting together a podcast during hunting season makes it difficult to get people on the phone. Hell, I can't even get my own brother on the line for an interview, so I thought I'd list all the important attributes to look for when pursuing huns in the western U.S. Top of the list, my brother will appreciate this. Stubble. Especially wheat stubble. In an area where huns are known to exist, the brushy edges of stubble might be the very best place to look for them. Water. Probably doesn't matter either way. I've never seen huns congregated due to access to water. That being said, in the really arid west, there may be times in the early season when hunting near guzzlers or other water sources is a good idea. Sunflowers. 
If you haven't hunted in North Dakota or certain areas in Montana, you may not be familiar with flowers as the locals refer to them. Four to six feet tall, this crop can shelter a lot of birds. And if the fields are reduced to stubble, you can often approach the birds right in the sunflower stubble or hunt the edges like you would wheat stubble. However, sunflowers are often the last crop standing well into January in some cases. And if you're hunting around standing flowers, the best tactic is to <clears throat> go back to your truck, start it, drive to an area of the country that doesn't have sunflower standing because Huns are nearly impossible to pursue in and around standing flowers. Brushy open cover. If your dog can't run to the cover you're hunting for Huns, it's probably too thick. These aren't quail, and though you often find Huns around pheasants, they don't seem to like the heavier cover that the larger birds sometimes congregate in. If the wind doesn't blow through it, it's too thick for Huns. Roadsides. If you spend enough time driving in hun country, you will likely see the birds on the side of the road, especially in mornings and evenings. Abandoned farmsteads. Huns seem to love these places. I don't know why, or if it's actually true that one is more likely to find them in farmsteads than in any other patches of similar cover, but it sure seems to attract them. And old farmsteads are so picturesque. Life is too short not to hunt an old farmstead if you get a chance you may even find a covey back behind the old granary or up against the old rusty hay rake. If you see an old farmstead and you can hunt it, hunt it. Where you found them before. It's human nature to associate a place with an event and try to replicate that event when exposed to that place. Every time I come up the steps from the Concourse C at the Denver airport, I always scan the carpet because I found a $100 bill there one time. However, with Huns, this tendency tends to be rewarded. They really do seem to have a strongly habitual nature when it comes to location. If you found them there before, hunt it. I was able to get one hunter online. Brian O'Connor, a wing shooter from Spokane, Washington, was kind enough to give me some of his time. We had our call as he was on active duty in South Korea. Unfortunately, much of the sound quality was poor but I had to include a bit of the interview about a recent hunt in Montana. When you got into them real good this last month, what was the situation? I went up to uh, some hunt management uh, property, signed in, and uh, what I did was I just zigzagged because it was a, a wheat field that had been pulled, and the wheat field was surrounded by uh, sage and and. Uh, with decent grass cover, and the terrain is pretty rough, so they couldn't farm all of it. So there's a little pocket of stage in the in the gullies and so forth all throughout this huge field. So I kind of zigzagged through the field all the way up above the field. Um, I found uh, four cubbies on the one day, uh, but in the uh, stage and grass areas within the field, not in the uh, the crop area itself. And then above the field, uh, it was just, it was amazing. It, it was, uh, uh, that day I busted up 16 cubbies of birds and they were all large cubbies. It was an amazing day. And above the field, it was a nice grassy area with, with a strip of sage that kind of went diagonally up the hillside. And all of those huns were in the, uh, in that sage right along the bottom edge. So as I walked, zigzagged up, Got a, got a cubby up, 
they, they, they flushed and glided down the hillside and then, you know, take uh, two more minutes of a walk, bam, another covey, they get up and, and flush on down and on and on and on. Uh, and it was just, it was an amazing day. Yeah, and that, those 16 coveys, that, that was in a uh, little bit less than three hours. And then uh, the day after that, before I had to leave, uh, I hunted a, an area uh, similar to that and ended up uh, moving eight coveys uh, in, in just a smidgen over two hours. Uh, so I would say the bird numbers are, are pretty good. And if you're in a good area, uh, you're certainly going to get some good dog work in and at least get to scare the hell out of a bunch of them. <laughs> so were you able to follow up cubbies and get any multiple flushes? One cubby a second time and then another cubby I was able to push push around three times. When they're all on a hillside they may not actually fly that hard or far but once they lock their wings and glide they can really just go forever sometimes. One of the valleys I used to hunt in Idaho, oh my God, uh, they would lock their wings and glide out. I could hike back down to my truck, get in my truck, drive to the other side of the valley, get back out, unload the dogs, and then go hunt them on the other side of the valley, just watch where they landed in. Those birds in that valley, they knew how to get away from whatever was threatened. There was like a volcanic outcropping in the middle of the valley floor, and if you were lucky, they would light in to around that. Then you could kick them around a little bit and uh, be hard a couple birds, but whew, up on the hillside, yes, just like Chucker. If you don't get your shot, forget it. <laughs> so there's finding hunts, and there's finding hunts. Growing up hunting without a dog, I spent more time searching for downed hunts than any other bird that I can remember. A little partridge are tough, tough. This is where a dog that's just as interested in downed birds as live ones is really a great asset. And I suppose I have to mention pointing dogs. In my experience, Huns are really good for pointing dogs. Though they certainly can run, they, they are no pheasant or even chucker. They just don't often choose to escape by running. If the cover's sufficient, they hold well, and even an impetuous pointer like my dog, Tika, would get them located and hold long enough for me to get up to them. Often, getting up as a covey, especially on the first flush, be ready for that straggler. If you can follow the covey, the subsequent flushes are often staggered and provide some really fine shooting opportunities. It seems I hardly ever get multiple flushers where I find them in eastern Washington. Either the birds fly off the fairly small patch of land where I have access, or I find them in steep areas I simply can't see them land, or even if I could, I may not have the legs to follow them. In the flatter ground with big tracts of land like Montana or Dakotas, you often get multiple flushes. I've heard it said that the third flush is a charm when birds aren't holding for an approaching hunter, and they were likely to allow you to approach as the covey gets scattered. But I think it really depends on the cover more than anything else. If they spook and continue to land in light cover, they may spook several more times. But if they lighten some good brushy cover, oh boy, that's a good situation. Eating Huns European histories are loaded with reference to the hunting, poaching, and selling of partridge. 
In fact, the meat was such a delicacy that it sold in markets for centuries. Literally. In 1509, the birds sold in Czechoslovakia for the equivalent of 10 cents each. Which sounds cheap until you consider you can get 50 loaves of bread for the same price. Tasty they are. Huns weigh in at around a pound live with no significant size difference between male and female. Their meat is pale and, and mild with almost a nutty flavor. As with all game birds with almost no fat, a quick fry or grill of a seasoned breast provides the most delectable fare. As my brother would say, they are best when they are lovingly killed and lightly cooked. Huns like a little elbow room, so on good years, they can get really spread out. I recall a hunt a few years ago in southeast Washington with my buddy Kyle. We spent several days driving and stopping and hunting various places for quail, pheasants, chucker. From low elevation treeless dry CRP to mid elevation abandoned farms with long forgotten apple trees, the fruit from which we filled our game bags, all the way up to dry ridges with pine and fir on the north and east slopes. If I recall correctly, we encountered Huns on every walk. We spent the night at a cabin on a ridge above the Grand Ronde River at about 4,800 feet in elevation. Now, that may not be too high for you folks in Wyoming or Montana, but in Washington, 4,800 feet is up there. While making breakfast of our previous day's harvest, I let the dog out to do her business. Ten minutes later, I realized she hadn't come back to the door, so I slipped on my boots and figured I'd go find her. I whistled, no effect. Then I spotted the white tip of her tail sticking up above the snowberry bushes at the base of a big Douglas fir, pointing. Blue grouse, I assumed. More curious than wanting to shoot something, I didn't even pick up my gun. I just walked behind her and five huns flushed out of the mountain shrubs. Sometimes they live there too. The Hun Event in October 2014, I had the opportunity to hunt with my brother Al and a couple other friends in southwest North Dakota. Our local expert had been in a large L-shaped tree planting earlier this season, had found grouse and saw pheasants, and suggested we try it as it was large enough for several people to start on each end and get the pheasants moving. We put on our vests and started in with the dogs. As Al and I approached the stunted juniper and hackberry rows, a big bunch of hunts got up wild. A big bunch, like 20-30 birds. Then, another big bunch. Then, as we were close enough for some shooting, another big bunch got up. Total count had to be near 100 birds. They flew up the hill and scattered into the rest of the tree planting while we fanned out and pursued each in our own direction. I remember seeing Eric, a young upland enthusiast from Central Oregon, going around and over the western ridge. Al went straight up the hill after some of the wilder birds. They each came back with a bag full of huns. I didn't fare quite as well. I think I ended up with a pair after it was all said and done. We got back to the trucks and we three old timers with over a hundred years of combined experience hunting birds agreed we'd never seen so many huns in one spot. Huns, they're handsome, charismatic, delicious, and plucky. Try them, you'll like them. Thank you for joining me for episode two. Stay tuned for the next one. Maybe a bit of delay as I'm on my way to North Dakota for some serious bird pursuit. If you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast software.
Until next time, keep your powder dry. <laughs>